And I think with the women's squad, what we did really, really well was the, the athlete group would feed back on itself. That feedback would be collated and given back to the athlete group. And then that group would meet every three weeks to go through that feedback. And people would have to go, I wrote that. This is why I feel this. And that would get dis- discussed. And at times that was incredibly challenging for young, you know, 20 something athletes. You know, that's, we think as 20 somethings has grown up, they're still on their journey of becoming adults. Um, but it really grows massive qualities and attributes that you, you will need in order to be successful. Hello there and a very warm welcome or welcome back to the podcast. My name is Steve Ingham. I'm an applied scientist and leader from the world of high performance sport. And on the podcast, I explore all aspects of human performance, whether that is getting stronger, fitter, mentally more prepared, eating better, playing better, leading and coaching in different ways, but also how we perform in work individually and as teams. And the way I do that is by speaking with great scientists, practitioners, researchers, coaches, athletes and entrepreneurs. I'm also keen to talk to people from outside of sports, people who are just interested in how we perform as humans. If you enjoy the podcast, then please do share it with friends and colleagues and be sure to subscribe. And if you want to support and champion us, then please do leave a review on iTunes. This week's episode is with Danny Carey. Now, Danny has led and coached the GB field hockey team for over 17 years. He recently coached the men's team to the Tokyo Olympics and is perhaps best known for coaching the women's team between 2005 to the London Games in 2012 and again from 2014 to 2018, leading them to a bronze in London and a wonderful gold medal at the Rio Olympics. What you'll hear from Danny is a thoughtful, considerate, yet performance-focused leader of people willing to make hard decisions, give clear feedback and to do what's best, not only for the team, but to be able to turn that focus on himself too, developing himself and his own leadership and performance. So, hi Danny, how are you? I'm, I'm well, thanks, Steve. Um, yeah, good. I've taken the dog for a walk and uh, got a few calls today, but other than that, I'm uh, pretty relaxed. Oh, look, I'm super excited to have you on the podcast. So thank you so much for making some time to, to chat to me. Um, could you just give me a bit of a background to you? Just kind of give me that origin story. Where did you come from? What was the, what was the sort of route into your, your coaching world? Yeah, sure. Um, I never intended to. To, to work in coaching um i went off to university originally studying information technology and swapped to sports science course at loughborough after only a few days much to the annoyance of my mum and dad who thought i was <laughs> giving up the fortunes of information technology um i then became a postgrad at warwick and from there i then sought to sort of a fledgling academic career and i had a, had a post at brunel university uh six years there and then four years down at the university down in Canterbury and during that time my sort of playing my hockey playing career was starting to come to an end and I was asked more and more whether I'd get involved with coaching 
um, coached a number of club teams um, to varying degrees of success uh, in terms of outcome, and then also got involved with the national junior teams around 1997. Um, and really, my academic uh, career, for what it was worth, also gave me a lot of flexibility around my time. I was very much my own boss, other than sort of having to do delivery, uh, you know, writing, research, and such like. So. Um, as a result, I, I just became more and more fascinated in coaching. And then in 2004, I became involved with the England Women's Programme because they were running a very, very big Great Britain programme in preparation for Olympic qualification for Athens. And those English players who weren't in the Great Britain squad were sort of being, it was a small, a very small, low-key programme running, and I was involved with that. Um, then the, the GB team unfortunately didn't qualify for Athens. Uh, the program hockey lost a lot of lot of funding, uh, and then the, essentially the hockey program almost ceased for a number of months as it sort of sought to understand where it's going to go next. And as part of that, they went out to advert for a new head coach. I remember speaking to the then performance director saying, hey, I'm very young, should I apply? Probably don't stand much for chance. He, and he was very honest and said, no, you don't stand a chance, but it'd be good <laughs> good to put your application in um, and almost you know, get used to going through the process. And I think that almost helped my cause because I was, I, I was very diligent in my application, but also very relaxed around it, had a very low expectation, ended up going through different rounds and yeah, and on January the 1st, I started as the, the women's national head coach. Um, with, with, with the women's programme through to 2012, in 2012, I became the performance, performance director of British hockey. So after London Olympics, I became a performance director. And then in 2014, for all status of events, took over again as head coach of the women's national team into Rio and into then a home World Cup in 2018. And then after the home World Cup for the women in 2018, took over as the men's national head coach and led that program through to the Tokyo, delayed Tokyo Olympic Games in 21. So 17 years. And now um, I've resigned and not really quite sure what's next. <laughs> okay, you've, you've given me the full history there. So yeah. that's it. That's a wrap. No, okay. um, Sorry, let's, let's go... <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back to what what did you study? What was your um what was your educational route? And then what did you actually teach yeah. as an academic? Yeah, so um whilst I was at Loughborough, I was very interested in, in um physiology <laughs> and also um the psych. So they were my two majors. My dissertation was in um cognitive anxiety of all things. Um, but interestingly, as a postgrad at Warwick, I moved over into sociology. And in particular, I was interested in two main domains. One of those was around uh, political economy and globalization. Uh, and the other was around Olympic bidding processes. So my master's thesis was actually around the Olympic bids of Manchester and Birmingham for 92 and 96 games. And then as part of the focus of that, understanding some of the economics and politics of the Beijing Olympic bid, or, or they were going through the Beijing Olympic bid. And that then led to me taking a a part-time post at Brunel University, which very quickly became a full-time post. And there I, I taught undergraduate sociology um, modules. 
and also got involved in the hockey program. So some practical delivery as well as teaching on the undergraduate courses. Wow. So IT, some physiology, some psychology and so sociology and economics. Uh, has that an array of studies and breadth been of use to you uh, as you've been searching, I suppose, uh, trying to shore up the, the quality of decisions or understanding what's going on, the different dynamics. Um, has that been of use? I think I think what has been of use is just at, when it's overdone, it's not of use, but when it's done well, it's, it's business. It's sort of a bit of challenging the status quo, a bit of critical thinking. It's a bit, bit sort of looking at things and just trying not to accept um, that that is the way it's done and that's why and we always do it that way that sort of critical thinking that i think comes as part of um you know grounding in good research methodology but also within critical thinking within sociology i think that's that's been a, a something I've, I've always sort of used within my career um early on in my tenure so through the beijing olympics you know i really i, I I didn't lead well, and that was really a function of almost being still stuck in that, you know, defeat the world through knowledge right. rather than through sort of also building good relationships. Um, uh, and that's, you know, something so I was fortunate to to overcome that and, and keep my role and sort of learn the lessons the hard way through that, through that period. Um, Could you give me a few examples of that, Danny, just in terms yeah, of sure. that, that initial responsibility of taking on a group feeling the accountability probably for uh, a lot of hockey fans in in the country um what what did that lead to in terms of your leadership style early on well i think i mean i was incredibly naive um you know i was very much around your classic you know have a have a high level of expertise technically and tactically sort of know know the sport and that's how i viewed um, my role, my role was to help produce a group of players that technically and tactically knew what they needed to do. Right. Um, but of course, taking people on that journey, setting high bars, and how you get people to strive towards those high bars is is a, is a lot more complex than just understanding the technical and tactical demands of the sport. Um, but I, I was naive. I, I didn't really understand or comprehend that. My previous roles didn't really require any kind of meaningful leadership. Um, I had no formal grounding or otherwise in, in that space. You know, of course, you, you had, had been captain of teams and all that sort of stuff. But the reality is that that doesn't equip you. Um, and, yeah, you, you, you absolutely feel accountable for performance you know you stood in in beijing in our, in our first game in, in beijing we lost 5-1 to germany it was very late at night and that's, that can feel very lonely and very crushing when athletes are staring at you and it's like right okay you know wh- where do we go next and you're like okay well, you feel like you've failed people um so yeah so that that mm. and there's been many moments like that over the years but equally some very incredibly amazing times too. Can can you remember back what um, differentiated your thinking into, and so crushing defeats, uh, feeling that failure, feeling that responsibility, 
what what stopped you from just trying to crush it with more knowledge or actually think about a blended approach of using that tactical knowledge but also weaving in the the artistic team building and leadership yeah i mean i i'm I, i've been i've spoken about this before but essentially poster games as always in olympic games is a big review process and 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 the feedback was very very blunt it was very direct you know it was, there were some elements of positivity around really understands the sport technically tactically really really okay really good but leadership zero and right. and it and it was you know it was no holds barred and you know you feel at that time you've given everything um and you and, and it can feel incredibly um tough yeah really really incredibly tough you feel like you really work as hard as you can for people and and for them to to write where they did but of course they're right um and it, it is it is at that point you can either be in denial or anger about it or you can accept it um of course and we can talk about this later on there are there are times when sometimes the group uh, that might be providing the feedback has to own their feedback and has to understand it's part of their journey. Um, but at the time, the way that I'd operated with that group, that that feedback was completely and utterly warranted. And unfortunately, I had a really good boss uh, in David Faulkner, who's a performance director, and a really good chair of the board in Philip Kimberley. And because I was kind of accepting of, yes, there's a need to change they backed me to continue through to London. And then I became absolutely adamant. I would try and do a much, much better job than I'd done through the Beijing cycle. Okay. So there was part determination, part in your face. It wasn't necessarily just a, a personal epiphany moment. It was presented back to you uh, fair and square. Yeah. Um, but you were supported and encouraged from, from above to be able to take up that challenge. And how did that feel? Yes. Good. I mean, at the time, um, you know, it was brutal. I mean, there's no, you know, I, I, okay, you know, obviously people go to war and fight, you know, their lives are at risk. My, my life wasn't at risk, but, you know, my sense of self, my identity, how much I was invested in it, it felt pretty, it felt brutal. Um, and it was staff as well as athletes. And again, they were, they were right as well. Um, one, one thing that did happen was that I went home that day um, and my my now wife said, uh, well, you're not the person that they've described. So this is, mm. you know, this is a relatively easy fix. Um, and, you know, that sounds an oversimplification, but that, that was a bit of a, okay, yeah, yeah, this this is not great feedback. It feels really painful, but actually... It shouldn't be too hard a shift to just let people see another side of you. Um, and you have to remember athletes under pressure, particularly around Olympic selections, um, major tournament selections, you know, that they, they will, even, even with very good environments, athletes will still read into head coaches and what they're thinking, and they will fill any vacuums with their own assumptions and anxieties. So you can do a very, very good job and still struggle in this space. Um, and that that is the reality of the real world. And, and you have to accept that sometimes as a coach and just realize you, you're not, not, you're not going to make everyone love you. Uh, and there will be challenges. Um, and it's just how much you're willing to keep going and working through that and accepting and seeing it for what it is. Mm. So there's a couple of 
dynamics there i'd just like to pick up on was that feedback from your now wife a little bit more of a, a motivation to be more authentic to yourself um you, you were talking about tactical presentation understanding the sport was that almost what you forced yourself to to show as opposed to actually being a little bit more of your whole self I think there's a lot at play when you're a young young coach, especially a young national coach in Olympic Games, and what are you falling back on? And often what you're falling back on is how you were coached. Right. Okay. Uh, and and if, if 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 what you perceived was what good coaching was, sort of austere, very this is the way and and that has been what in what you perceive as being effective that's often what you fall back on despite sort of um perhaps some education to the contrary you you, you know you, you can perhaps sometimes fall into the trap of being the persona of people you were coached by now the other thing i would say is that what had got me to become the national head coach you know being exceptionally proficient in sort of technically and tactically in the sport is, is also what's got you there so you know you will work to that particular strength mm. but when it's overdone then of course there's a, a lack of building relationships if you've got 30 plus athletes it can be pretty challenging to build athletes you know 30 30 relationships with athletes that all of them feel equally valued that that's all well it is an impossible task um but you can do a much better job than i did through through the beijing cycle and so how did you then start so if you came out of that brutal uh, candid emotional feedback about you and and how it felt to be led by you uh, how did you make a change and what did you um what did you do in pursuit of trying to create a, a different feel in that environment well i was really aware that you know there's essentially some some trust had been broken down especially with some some athletes some some i think some athletes inherently had a really good relationship anyway i think they they you know, they were very what I would call mature athletes, they would seek to understand me, even if I weren't, even if I wasn't doing a good job the other way around, you know, they would sort of, you know, look beyond some of my sort of serious default face where I look very serious, very thoughtful and sort of try and understand my background. Actually, you know, Danny's actually fine. He's, he's, so rather than just making assumptions about what I'm thinking, actually inquiring. And I had a really good relationship with, even, even through that Beijing period with some very, very 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 good hockey players but i also knew that um you know i'd profoundly broken the trust with some others and so some i went out of my way to one athlete in particular i went and took out for dinner and to apologize really for how i made them feel um sort of opened up and said look i'm really wary i've really you know, made your olympic experience not what you wanted it to be and and tried to build bridges but also knew that you know, that that one act wasn't in itself going to be itself. And I had to sort of consistently through the London Olympic cycle just just be just be more myself. And that is sometimes just being very, very thoughtful, very considered about things, quiet, introspective. That that that's some of my strengths. But equally at times, you know, just living in the moment, having conversations with people about stuff other than hockey. And so over time, just consistently being that way, which which I was, and people then, I was then also very explicit about the feedback I was, I was given and, and feeding that back to the athletes. I've heard this, this is what you've said. 
and then very consistent behavior through that London cycle. And so people became more accepting of whom I, who I was, what my strengths were and working with those strengths rather than trying to make me be someone that I wasn't. And I think that's why it then became quite a, I wouldn't say, you know, sweet and harmonious relationship with the athlete right. group. You know, it's, it's a challenging world. It is, it is, it is challenging. Um, but equally one based on sort of mutual trust and respect when, when people want you to be something you're not, you've got a decision about whether you're willing to be that or not. And, um, but that wasn't that, that case through 2012 and 2016. Sort of the athletes knew who I was, the way I operated, what they respected about that, what they struggled with, but understood if they struggled with that, they could get it from somewhere else. And um, that's why I think that group, that cohort, um, we, we had a really successful period. Mm. And w- one of the phrases that I, I know is associated with you is around culture over performance. And h- how did you balance that? As a, as a motivation, as something that you were invested in, that you were creating and that took time over what I think often is in sport is that currency of getting results <laughs> that just keeps the, the wall from the door, just, just keeps the, um, some people who maybe have to be accountable for sort of the yeah. metrics or conversion. How did you, how did you balance that? So I, I think we we have been fortunate or had been fortunate in Olympic hockey in that really our majors, you know, maybe one or two sometimes a year. So you have significant periods of program time to invest in, in, in high performance environment and the frequency of it, evolution and iteration where you can constantly, you know, almost weekly come back and have the conversations about how are we doing on these things? This is, this is how we've discussed we're going to be. And then going out of my way to design or build that into the program. Um, and so I think we're very fortunate in that regard, unlike some of the professional sports where there's more weekly competition, then, you're, then, then absolutely there's a, there's a consequence to not delivering performance weekly on a weekend and, and you may not get the time to, to build that. I think the skill comes where you're trying to balance the two requirements and that ultimately, if you believe that, culture precedes performance, which I absolutely do, then you're going to find time, even weekly, even when there's a, a when there's match play on a weekend, you're gonna you're gonna find time. And you can embed it in many, many different and subtle ways. It might be within the practice environment. You can be referring to uh, you know the, the values of the team, the behaviors, the expectations of the team, and even even reward and yeah, reward those moments within team environments so you can be skillful about it you can be nuanced about it but it is around frequency and um intentional effort around those things rather than thinking it's one or the other but it was easier through the london and rio olympic cycles when we didn't have more frequent international competition in the tokyo cycle we had the evolution of the pro league and it just became a bit more challenging with much more frequent one-off international matches right okay so what I'm hearing there is that we're setting out a certain environment and certain feel. So you're embedding those, those norms and those values into the feedback about how do we get on with these tactical aspects in terms of dominating opposition or meters covered, whatever it might be. And also how do we live our norms and our agreed ways of, of working? Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. And if I bring that to life, um, 
often often I've become very frustrated when I hear sort of football commentators who have blunt talking about oh there's a lack of leadership on the team you know it's a very glib statement which they'll talk about um and then they'll say things like you know oh well they're just born and you're lucky if you have one and and I really don't believe in that I think you can systematically go about building people who can lead themselves they can grip a situation they can grip others and therefore you can have a more to quote Rick Charlesworth a more leaderful team a team full of people who are capable of leading um around their strengths and skills at any moment in time and if you value that which i do then you design environments that are constantly challenging athletes to do that rather than go inward and internal and understand the problem probably understand what needs to be done about it but not willing to actually take action about that um for fear of maybe they thinking they might to make the wrong decision or, or interact with a player in the wrong way and of course high performance teamwork that doesn't require that that requires you to take a risk about your sense of self to step out of that space and so if you believe that then you're going to build that into your daily environment but it takes time and unfortunately one of the things that one of the biggest challenges of coaching job is to try to help athletes to understand how long it takes and like everybody like me like every athlete they want it tomorrow um and it doesn't happen tomorrow it takes months and many years to reach where you want to go so one of your real challenges as a coach is to to raise awareness it takes time and it's a process and you've got to keep committing to it so what I'm hearing there is not the shouty instructions from the sideline, um, do this, do that, because I know best, I'm the coach, I'm in charge. I'm hearing about put, put a little bit more um, intensity or intentional focus into practice so that you're cultivating dynamic uh, decision makers that are fluid and adaptable to whatever play that's that's emerging yeah. as, as the game might progress, the different opponent set that you might um, encourage i mean two 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 fantastic examples to bring that to life we'd spent a huge amount of years preparing for london 2012 literally, literally no stone unturned for london 2012 we were leading japan uh 4-0 in the very first game of the olympics and kate who was our skipper an incredibly good leader has her jaw broken in four places by a japanese player and the video of that particular moment, which I sometimes show when I'm talking about this concept of developing leaders and the team and people who are going to be willing to step out and actually grip the situation, grip others. When you watch that moment, you see our medical team run on to deal with Kate. And then you see our team and two or three individuals in that team take everybody else away from Kate in that moment. They all come together. And there's a conversation about what still needs to happen in the time remaining. So someone's had the presence of mind, and I won't name name the individual as well. They have the presence of mind. Think actually, all sitting around Kate at this moment. So there's nothing we can do, and it's also going to detract from what actually needs to happen next in terms of our performance. We've got to trust the medical staff going to do a really, really good job, and we are mindful enough that some people are going to be a bit all over the place because they've just seen someone's jaw shattered. So. And that's all happening without someone from the side of the pitch going, right, get together, have a conversation, all that sort of nonsense you see sometimes from coaches. Um, So for me, that was a really strange moment. You know, there's this this sort of 
in hindsight now, like a very proud moment of all of that work sort of paying off and those individuals understanding what their strengths are and when that becomes appropriate for them to lead. Um, so that's a really good example. You embedded it, you worked on it, and then it comes to fruition when it matters most. And then another moment is in the Olympic final in Rio 2016 when we we're playing the Netherlands. We'd spoken a lot about the Netherlands ill-discipline and, and, and the propensity for kicking the ball away and a little moments that could lead to them getting green cards at critical moments in the last few minutes of the game. Exactly that happened. And then it was about sort of the ability to see and identify that moment and do tactically take advantage of it. And so in that moment, I remember Holly Webb stepping up from a deep uh, defensive uh, role, sort of deep-lying defensive role, and stepping up into a sort of a, a deep or more attacking midfield role, which created us a little number overload higher up the pitch and literally in the next play, a little defensive, a little overload, attacking overload into the right-hand side against the Netherlands, penalty corner, equalised, we win the shootout, gold medal. And, and again, it takes a long time, years, for athletes to appreciate the training environment for those moments. Um, and that's, again, a moment of where someone has gripped the situation, understood what needed to happen in that moment, saw the opportunity, took action, organised others around them, and then allowed that overload to occur. And on that a gold medal is one. Um, so those moments come from the years and it is years of work that's put onto the pitch and the frustration of players, why are we doing this type of stuff, you know? Um, but in my experience, and obviously there's a confirmation bias playing out, but in my experience, that is the thing that defines your success. Those that mm. sort of cultural environment where people lead and lead others in moments of pressure. Mm. Oh, wow. Uh, superb examples. Um, I'd love to just explore a couple of the, the things that emerged from that. One, you talked about your, your medical staff, your support staff. So you, you're also thinking about the players in the team, but you're also thinking about the people that might come in to, to influence, whether it's the analysis, whether it's the nutrition. What, what are the qualities of the people that you're looking in support of that environment? That would be one um, question that would emerge from that. Yeah, um, and I think towards the end of the Rio cycle, with the help of Andrea first, who was one, who was our team psychologist throughout, we we did some excellent work about just scratching harder under the surface about how we function as a team and what we were like on a good day and a bad day, and therefore what we needed to support each other in those moments. Uh, I remember a particular conversation in January 2016. We were in Perth, Australia, and we deliberately, or I had deliberately chosen to take it to a pretty tough environment, summer Australia, incredibly hot, long way from home, living in small, small little accommodation, not very luxurious, tough test series, lots of players, lots of injuries, deliberately a tough environment, making good decisions about athletes under pressure, but also a real opportunity for Andrea to help facilitate conversations with staff about, okay, we're, we're working hard about how this athlete group works as a team. What about us? And um, there were some pretty tough conversations. I remember one member of staff, you know, they took it pretty hard, some of the feedback, but it was it was given with really good intent and compassion. And I think what well, I know, having conversations with that person subsequently, that, you know, that message after the initial denial and anger bit really hit home and realised it 
they were really valued. It might not have felt like at the time they were really valued and what they could bring, but they also just realised they needed to mitigate some elements of their behaviour around certain aspects. And Andrew did a really good job around that. And and then we, through reflection on that process, we tried to embed that more and more through to the 2018 Women's World Cup and how we operate and function as a staff team. And, uh, and then subsequently, that's always something that I've been very interested in. But of course, one of the challenges you then face as a head coach, you've got to, like I recently with the men, you know, circa 14 staff, 31 athletes, you know, you've got 45 odd individuals there and everyone wants to have this wonderful relationship with you at some granular level at 45 it's very very difficult to hold hold true to so you've got to understand okay as a head coach and i didn't get this balance right you've got to you know where's your priorities lay where does ultimate performance lay and, and prioritize a little bit better i think um more recently sometimes some of my focus has been really probably a little bit too much on the staff team and dynamic and therefore in subsequent recruitment you know is ensuring that those staff are well-developed rounded individuals who understand their role they don't they're not needing of the head coach's time and energy um they're going to function with autonomy uh, and when given autonomy aren't going to worry about being given that autonomy you know not not having to check everything with the head coach all the time so um that's definitely something i've reflected on in the last um few months really is just where do you spend your time as a head coach and this is just opening up a whole raft of other questions that i've got for you but <laughs> what i'm hearing there is that 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 sense of look you're going to get feedback we're going to give it to you in a compassionate way but it's got good intentions because we want you to be better at your job so we're investing that emotional effort to to try and help you improve but what you're expecting there is an openness to that to to change and adapt and to respond to that i think it's as you, you know you talked about that that uh, preponderance for tactical uh, technical knowledge um when you've got support staff after they come in and lead with that when actually what you're looking for is the ability to change and adapt and respond to the to that feedback yes and i think there's a as part of that there's a real skill to the process you set up around feedback. So more recently in high performance sport, there's a lot of anonymous surveys. And yeah. I think the intention of that, it's well intended, it's around psychological safety. I would actually argue we need to be really careful that actually what we don't do is undermine some of the qualities and abilities we want in athletes and staff to own feedback and to deliver challenging conversations because then they have to evidence information and they have to think about how can I best deliver this message in a way that it will be received rather than putting stuff into spreadsheets anonymously that doesn't have to be evidence that doesn't have to be delivered doesn't require the skills of courage to engage in a challenging conversation and so you're not growing people's individuals. You're actually probably unintentionally and probably well-intentionally actually undermining and stunting some of their growth and development. So how people are able to give feedback when it's challenging needs to be considered more, I think. And I think with the women's squad, um, what we did really, really well was the, 
the athlete group would feed back on itself. That feedback would be collated and given back to the athlete group. And then that group would meet every three weeks to go through that feedback. And people would have to go, I wrote that. This is why I feel this. And that would get dis- discussed. And at times that was incredibly challenging for young, you know, 20 something athletes. You know, that's, we think as 20 somethings has grown up, they're still on their journey of becoming adults. Um, but it really grows some massive qualities and attributes that you, you will need in order to be successful. Um, so mm. that's my little soapbox there, but I feel yeah, quite, no, I, I feel so. quite passionately about it. It's important. I think, um, I guess confronting that the the issues, but but owning them, doing it in a way that gets practiced, so you do get better at it. Because if you're the recipient of some feedback that is harsh or developmental, however you want to put it, you're probably going to be then thinking, well, how will I want to present that to other people so that it's 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 um it's more constructively received. It, um, for for me, critically also that it it, it really it really makes the individual think about what it, what is my intention here? What sits underneath why I'm providing this feedback? Is this really around performance or is this something that sort of belies a need that is not being serviced or a want rather than a need from a performance perspective? You know, when people are having to own and objectively evidence what they're saying and why they're saying it, there's it really there's a really stop and check moment there. And I think that is a key part of growing up and understanding what it is I'm trying to say here and what is making me think and feel this. Um, whereas sometimes I feel when it's when there's sort of anonymized feedback. That, that process doesn't have to happen. People can write stuff and not have to evidence it objectively, provide it, and, and also grow the skills to deliver that in person. So you've, you've got to go on that journey. You can't just go from nothing to 100%. You've got to take people on that journey. It takes time, um, but it's certainly something that I think is part of how you develop a performance environment. You mentioned something earlier, and I've just got a hint of of, uh, of, of a tension or, or a dynamic that you've felt. Um, stop me if I'm I'm barking at the wrong tree here, but this this idea of actually investing and dialing up the the team building and the culture and so on. Um, you you talked about having forty five people on a team, and yeah, that's quite a lot of that's quite a high burden for you as a leader to to be worrying about every interaction or dynamic. I'm hearing that sense of a little bit of, um, you know, what's the quote? You can't please all the people all the time. You can please some of the people some of the time, yep. et cetera. Uh, is that a sense of, of look, we, we've, you've got to, you've got to bear this yourself. You can't necessarily have to do all of it uh, as a leader and, and you've got to expect other people to step up too. Yes. And I, and I was Katie Warner who, who had a, I had the absolute pleasure of working with us. And she was psychologist for the men's program. She would often say to me, "You know, sometimes as a leader, you, if you believe in something, you stand up for it. <laughs> you know, so that's not going to that's not going to land well. But that that is, if you if you have the courage of convictions, you have to hold hold true to them. And and as a result, sometimes you're going to annoy, upset, and uh, frustrate people. But that that comes with the territory. And I do think some of the discourse around coaching and leaders uh, doesn't discuss that." 
and it's almost this sort of all leaders have somehow got to reach everybody on a level that you know is almost I think impossible to achieve. So I think um, what we did or tried to do, and I think at times did exceptionally well, especially through the work of Katie Warner and Tim Pitt, the two psychologists involved in the men's program, was unearthing um, people's histories, their biographies, and sharing with them group, building more mutual trust, and people understanding where others are coming from and why they act and behave the way they do. So yes, absolutely spend time investing in that and then look to develop more leaders and try to build processes that essentially require people to step into those spaces of, of leading. Um, and again, that has to be skillfully and well thought through. Ultimately, people will then succeed or fail about whether they will step into those spaces. Um, you, you know, there's the adage of you can lead a horse to water, but will it drink? You know, you can keep providing those opportunities, keep putting it at the front of things. Um, and I think that's something that we did did well through the work of Katie and Tim. And then ultimately, athletes succeeding or failing and staff succeeding or failing will depend on people taking the step. Mm. So if I, it, uh, it might be a, a little bit too crass for me to ask you to compare and contrast 2012 cycle and result versus 2016 obviously different color medals um but can you make any and, and you've all and, and i must acknowledge you've already been self-aware enough to sort of, sort of say look there's a confirmation bias as uh, must have all been good for 2016 but so um is there anything that you can pick out that you've got some tangible evidence behind that, that was different in terms of how you worked or how the team uh, worked? So again, I can't objectively say this was the thing, but. Um, so you let's say the subjective. Then. Yeah. yeah, yeah so subjectively. So, so in 2012, and I, I don't know, I don't mind sharing this. 2012 was really the absolute pinnacle for me. We, that was a medal absolutely through hard work by design 2014 to 2016 when i took over there was a lot of holy moly we've got about 18 months to get ready for rio there's a lot of stuff that we, we needed to kind of get a grip on and handle on one of the big reflections i had from 2012 reading through the feedback which was in high contrast to feedback from 2008 but a lot of the athletes spoke about we were incredibly well prepared, incredibly well prepared, and we knew exactly what to do under, under different circumstances. So as a coach, you can read that and go, oh, brilliant, did a great job. Mm. But it was the phrase around we knew exactly what to do that really got me thinking about why we lost the semifinal to Argentina. We lost a, a heartbreaking semi to a very good Argentina side um, containing probably one of the, well, the best player the world has ever seen in Luciana Aymar. And um, it was crushing. The reality was they scored early and then they scored another goal in contentious circumstances. We got a goal back, but we couldn't do enough to break them down to get the equaliser. And for me, it was a case of we were a little bit too predictable in our play. Um, and so that we knew exactly what to do. There just needed to be sort of harnessing the strength of that whilst also just allowing a little bit more, a, a little bit more license for players to go off script. 
And so this isn't the one thing that was the difference between 2012 and 2016, but I think it, on the pitch, it was slightly different between 2012 and 2016. That, that the, the way that we coach the athletes with these are the principles of play, know these principles of play, they inform your decisions under pressure. If we know them and we can consistently make good decisions under pressure, we'll do really, really well. However, there is an element of license to break the principles of play if there's a better or better better solution. And we had a few players in who in that bracket had a therefore had a little bit more license around breaking the principles of play. And in the Olympic final, there were two moments where you could almost argue someone went a little bit off script. And that script is can be your absolute strength. You know, it gives you real clarity of team understanding. What's my teammate going to do here? So if people are always going off script, there's just no understanding. But if if there's enough wriggle room that, okay, there's a better opportunity here, the better moment, and it's not being gung-ho with breaking the script, then take it. And I think that was a slight difference between the gold medal winning team on the pitch and the bronze medal winning team on the pitch uh, between London and Rio. Um, yeah, uh, some of that is just a function of the players involved. And some of that was there was a little bit of a, a little bit of more in the license in the coaching to go, yes, that is the expectation here. These are our principles, but also, yeah, okay, if there's a, if you can see an opportunity there, okay. Not all of the time, <laughs> like otherwise it's just chaos. People don't understand what your teammates are doing. Yeah. Okay. So the calculated risk effectively. So yep. we're calculating the formations, uh, tactical awareness, the, the the patterns of play that we're well drilled on will serve as the base to allow us to unlock something that will be very difficult for a team to predict. Or yeah, and 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 of course, then you've got humans interacting in all of that. Mm. You've got um, you've got some players who actually probably their strength is they really understand the system and they can really deliver on it. And it opens up spaces and opportunities for other people who possibly have different sets of skills that can go and exploit some of those off script moments. And some people can get really on board with that and others can rail, well, why can't I do that? And they can, you know, and, and, and sort of that sense of unfairness and, and having those types of conversations with players about you know what this is what you're world leading at this is the value you bring to the team do this for the team and it allows some of those players to do some of these things which they are world leading at and trying to have those types of conversations mm. whereas sometimes people players don't accept that i don't make world-class passes frequently um but i want to make them actually that's not what you're in the team for. Your, your team is to just make consistently good decisions, defend really, really well. You don't need to be making these world-passing players to be valued, world-class passers to be valued, but they struggle with that. I want to have impact. And I, I, I heard that term so often as a coach, I want to have impact. Do the right thing. Mm, yeah. um, and how, how were you? Uh, were you? Did you have any different mantras or approaches for the different cycles you've been through? Um, so post post Beijing, I had a really, in fact, I still use it, um, a little mantra, which is uh, why what, W-A-I-W-A-T, which I'm sort of quoting on a little bit nowadays, which is where am I, where are they? Um, so, you know, to bring that to life, any interaction, especially under pressure is, you know, 
how am I feeling? Tired, anxious, nervous, upset, angry, over the top, elated. Um, and where are they? Where are they? And, and then almost the, the secondary question is, where do I need to be? So I remember just before the Olympic shootout in Rio coming down thinking, actually feel quite good about this. I feel like we're really, really well prepared. Looking at the Dutch, they look broken psychologically, like we were always going to win the shootout. Um, and then I was thinking, so, okay, where am I? I'm actually in the right place. Where are they? I actually looks like the athletes are in the right place too. So really good. But interestingly, some of the staff had been pitch side. I felt probably they weren't in the right space. They were like, no shootout, woo, you know. Right, okay. um, so it was a bit like, okay, the athlete group are good. I just need to kind of just keep a bit of a handle on the rest of the staff group. Um, and in fact, Kate, the skipper, came and had almost a similar conversation with me saying, right, athletes are really good, but some of the staff need to just calm down a bit. <laughs> okay. um, and so that why what mantra is something I use a, a lot, especially at things like Olympics when you're absolutely, you know, if, relatively sleep deprived you've been in a holding camp for two weeks you're then in olympic games for another two weeks you know you've lived cheek by jowl it's not a day off you know it's, you can get into a yeah potentially a poor performance environment as a as a as a coach so where am i where do i need to be where are they where do they need to be a little little mantra i carry so i love that did it did it um stand up all the way through the shootout did it weather the storm <laughs> did you hold that for me, for me yeah yeah absolutely so um <laughs> ironically, for me I, I maybe i needed that just watching it <laughs> uh, so i ironically um the two things happened one one is the athlete group that were taking the shootout all we'd, we'd, we'd rehearsed and rehearsed our processes and part of that involved like how that group taking the shootout stood and and worked with each other and as a result they stood about 20 meters in front of me directly in front of me so i could i couldn't actually see the shootout happening so i'm with the rest of the squad thinking i can't really see what's going on here so you know and so there's a great photo of everyone sort of jumping up as a goal's gone in um or the, the gold medal winning goal from holly webb and i i I only knew that when everyone else jumped up and then I jumped up, you know, <laughs> but the photos looks like I'm just still stood there because I, I don't know if we scored or not. So, um, <laughs> yeah, it was an interesting moment. So I'd be keen to ask you about how I actually felt in the moment and afterwards, but I'm also curious to pick up on that point about self-management around um, looking after yourself uh, during the big moments, during the pressure, during the high workloads, as well as handling the pressure. So yeah. maybe if you could just, just riff on, on how it actually felt afterwards yeah. and, and the, the legacy of it, really. Yeah, so if I if I'll come back to Rio and I'll talk about Tokyo now. So Tokyo Olympic Games, you know, delayed by a year, um, trying to prepare a team through restrictive um, protocols, you know, small training groups, no contact, and then very limited very limited international match play. We weren't allowed to cut the squad size down because it wasn't seen as morally a good thing to do, cutting the squad down. You know, people during the lockdown pandemic saying, sorry, you're surplus to requirement. You know, it's just not morally a good place right. to be, but meant a very large squad. Um, so numbers, you know, become more challenging to handle all those relationships, um, particularly around people wanting to feel valued. Um, going into the Games itself, the International Olympic Committee 
I mean, it was ridiculous. Suddenly, suddenly changed the regulations around for some of the peer accredited reserves. Traditionally, they could only come into our squad if there was a medical injury that meant that person injured could no longer take part in the tournament. Literally, a few days before the Olympics, they changed the regulations. We'd done all of our work with our traveling reserves around you're traveling, it's going to be really tough, but you aren't t- can't take place. To all of a sudden, they're like, can I play now? Because you could be subbing people in and out of reserves. I took the decision that we selected a squad and worked with that squad because of the permutations and the skills and quality of that squad. And if they were fit and healthy, we were going to stay with that squad. And I would still make that decision now, um, given the athlete group, given the skills and quality, I would still make that decision. Um, but obviously, if you're an athlete who's a travelling reserve, that's it's difficult enough. And then when the regulations change and then you're like, okay, maybe I am going to get to play. Oh no, now the coach is now saying I'm not going to get to play. You know, you, they can rail against that. I found that incredibly challenging, but what I did do well was decide that I'm not going to be able to resolve that person's emotions. They are going They are One of those individuals is going to be unhappy and there's little or nothing I can do about that. If I sense it's going to impact detrimentally on other athletes in the village, then I'll intervene. Otherwise, trust the athlete group to manage that individual. Um, so that is a lesson I'd learned from previous where I'd ruminate too much on, you know, athletes that are unhappy. Mm. Um, and I look back on that and ironically, it was incredibly tough for those individuals like, unbelievably tough you know you imagine you've trained all those years you travel all the way to olympics but you're not going to get to play i mean i can't begin to imagine how tough that is equally um your job there is to right have the courage and convictions and and trust what you've invested in the time and engineering process and this conversations you've had and now therefore your job is to keep your focus where it needs to be and that is on those playing and what needs to happen and I look back and I think I actually did actually pretty pleased with how I, you know, where am I? This is, I would rather this not be the case. Is there much I can do about it? No. Okay. Accept it. You know, really accept it. It is what it is. Trust the athletes will deal with it and, and keep and do a really good job by those who are playing. And that, that's something I, I look back and think it was incredibly tough, but I did a good job. Um, I'm sure in the eyes of the athletes involved, those reserves, maybe not. But um, it's it's a tough world. Um, Rio and the gold medal moment. This is going to be a bit hard, maybe, to comprehend for for the viewers or listeners. I'll try to put it in terms that maybe make some sense. But for how was that? Twenty sixteen. So I started two thousand. So that's eleven or twelve years of work there. And for probably 80% of those athletes, I've worked with that same cohort and there have been tremendous ups and downs and really incredibly tough moments, incredibly good moments. And I have spent every day looking backwards at what's just happened and then looking to what's going to happen. So literally every waking moment, like, what, you know, review, what, what do you do? What do we do? what's good, what's bad, what needs to develop, and then what does that mean for the future? So literally every moment. And all of a sudden, uh, the shootout goes in. You've just won Olympic gold medal as a group of athletes. You've kind of hit something you've been aiming for. 
and you're like, what next? Mm. Like, because you've spent forever in this mode of looking backwards and looking forwards and not like, woohoo, <laughs> we've won, yeah, okay. we've, we've, we've done it. That was my response. And um, I was really, I really just, I felt incredibly proud, but I was also incredibly like trying to process it. Like, wow, we've done it. But it, it was really trying to process it, let it sink in. And um, I remember the day after, um, again, something I've spoken about before, but I remember the day after all of the staff and athletes, quite rightly, are going absolutely large in Rio de Janeiro, you know, <laughs> off the Ipanema Beach and Christ and Redeemer and, you know, not going to bed and partying pretty hard. I spent the day in my room writing a great big mind map. And that isn't, I'm not, that that's a that's really sad indictment of where I was. I, I should have been out celebrating and living, you know, smelling the roses in the moment. But I I was just struggling to process everything and also trying to make sense of, well, we've done it. What 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 does this mean? So I was just classically, why did we win and how are we going to win again? Because that's what I'd known for eleven right, years. Okay. Um, I I could struggle to just go. Brilliant! Right, let's just go and celebrate. I, I didn't have that capacity. So I don't say that uh, as a, you know, that's a good, what a good coach does. I actually tell it as the opposite. You know, I didn't have the skills of, all right, let's just go and celebrate. Because um, mm. I just didn't have the capacity to do that. It sounds like you were feeling the tension of, why am I feeling like this? Or, or why can't I? Um, yeah. In the moment of, of jubilation or celebration, uh, you were having an internal tension as to, well, I don't want to do that. I want to do something else to, come to terms with or accept and understand it yourself yeah and and i'd really labor i was really happy and really really proud mm. but my way of processing what happened was to almost like well why did we win get that all down on a big mind map and then how are we going to win again get that all down on a big mind map because that's kind of where I'd, the way i'd existed for 11 odd years at that point in time um so yeah, I was incredibly proud of those group of athletes and of the staff and incredibly a sense of incredible accomplishment, but that manifested itself in a way that often I think other people looked at and go, well, why isn't Danny in, you know, in the bar with everybody else? Um, it's not because I'm a miserable scrote. It was just because I was trying to comprehend it all. And, and did you, did you get past the miserable scrope bit or did you, did you ruminate to a point where you'd processed it that allowed you to do something different? Um, was this a, cause I sometimes call the sort of post-Olympic lull, the jubilant grieving where we're experiencing this high, but we're also quite down because it's all over. And, and now we've, we're looking at the next goal and we're a little bit miserable that we've got to crack on. And <laughs> so yeah. th there's that stage of processing. Did you get past that and how did that feel? Um, I remember coming home and then driving uh, all the way to South France with my family, which is a long drive mm -hmm. down to the Mediterranean. Um, and that was brilliant because it's just sort of a completely different environment, different people. And it just allowed me, especially the drive, allowed me just to sort of process stuff and driving and also not people who wanted to talk about Rio. You know, so, so it just yeah. allowed me a bit of, bit of space. Um, but you're absolutely right. What I think people don't really comprehend is how long that process takes. 
you know, I, I remember recently coming back from Tokyo and I won't name names, but someone said to me, oh, I'm really, I really respect how much you've taken some time off and, you know, you must be good to go now. And I'm like, you know, a two week holiday, <laughs> it doesn't scratch the surface, you know, you, the reality is it, it is months of, of kind of coming to come to terms and decompressing and, and working through, especially through that pandemic, you know, it's, it's months of getting your head back in a reasonable space of, um, of, of being. Um, and I think we, I think we do a good job with the athletes um, around understanding that and giving them space and time. So in the hockey group, you know, we basically told them to disappear until January it's not the same with the staff group. We're back in, you know, a few weeks later, and you know that's that that's, that that possibly needs some reflection. Mm. Yeah. Okay. And so, what what's what's your now perspective? Given you, you've had a bit of time um, beyond the the world of hockey, um, what do you hope is the legacy from from all of this work? I think I think it must happen in a number of sports where um, you know new new leadership comes in, and I think really good leaders coming in try and embrace the really good stuff of the past and evolve the bits that need to evolve. Um, so you get evolution rather than stagnation. Um, I I. There is always pressures on the Olympic programs, external pressures for change and how it impacts on different stakeholders. And hockey, like most sports, is facing those pressures. Hockey has probably had its most successful period ever, um, including the men's period, sort of a, uh, 88 era. Um, and so there's some needed evolution. And I'm sure that will happen with new leadership. What I really hope is that it embraces the stuff that made it successful and evolves mm. rather than new broom, everything they did before is wrong and it all gets thrown out. I don't think that will happen. I hope it won't happen. But um, I think we, 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 we learned so much through those Olympic cycles about how you how you create environments, how you train, the, the, the session design, the learning methodology, the review processes, the leadership, the culture environment. And one of the things I am proud about is the women's program still holds the uh, vision, values, and behaviors work, the cultural work that they did through the Rio cycle is, is still the backbone of the cultural work now. And so that's now second or third coach since I've left. And I think that that is a sign of an organization that's mature enough to hold on to what what is good while still evolving where it needs to evolve mm. i'm hear, hearing a almost a simile there with the, the tactical play on the field in terms of we know how to control situations or we've got a rigid uh, we've got some patterns of play that we can rely on but when we need to go wild or we need to sense an opportunity we can and we can react to it yes and i think I think good performance planning is similar. It's like there is a real strong sense of direction, but rather than okay, being therefore blind to opportunities that come along the route of that sense of direction, a really good performance planning 
doesn't rigidly hold to the plan when other opportunities um, present themselves. And I and I'd like I'd like to think that that will happen now in in, in the years to come for hockey. Mm-hmm. So you say you've gone gone solo now. So what what are you up to? Um, what are the challenges that you've got in front of you? Uh, paying the mortgage. Paying the mortgage, um, yeah. Paying the mortgage, so, yeah. <laughs> Find um, someone to do that for yeah, you. Yeah, <laughs> get, get, getting, 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 up, getting up in the morning and, and, and not having the certainty that I'd had previously, like literally knowing, you know, for the next few weeks, months, years, exactly what was coming down the road, not knowing about that, so dealing with uncertainty and almost embracing it a little. Um, and then what have I been up to? I've done uh, lots of little days here and there of consultancy. So I've worked in uh, three different bodies within football, Premier League, the LMA um, and the FA. I've done some work uh, within rugby, um, some really fascinating work with, with Hong Kong rugby, about to do some work with England rugby. And um, I've also been dipping my toe into corporate world so i've been doing some leadership development work with um, the FTSE 100 company um that's been fascinating it's my first sort of delving to my delving into that so uncertain genuinely of what the future holds for me i've deliberately taken the the view that sort of try everything you know be open to it and i've had lots and lots of lots of amazing conversations with people who've been really good at giving their time um and just taking the approach of try everything, don't discount anything. And then, but there is an element of anxiety in me. There's an element of, right, you know, opportunities, you can see them come and go. And like, how many do I let come and go before deciding I really need to just nail something a little bit more down? Um, or do I just stay more in this sort of solo consultancy space? I'm not sure that's me. I like a sense of belonging. I like a sense of, um, being involved in a project with people going towards something, but that could just be a bit because that's my comfort blanket. That's mm. what I've done for 17 years. So I, I'm uncertain at the moment, Steve, if I'm honest. Oh, well, I've no doubt that the vivid and powerful, but also thought provoking philosophical approaches that you bring that, that are burnished in that Olympic environment, it would be very powerful for people to, to draw upon for their own performance. So, and uh, no doubt that you'll succeed in that wherever you go. So thank you so much for sharing your insights, Danny. I've really, really appreciated it. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you, Steve, for inviting me on. It's, um, yeah, um, I, hope, I hope people find something somewhere in, in, amongst all of that. So thank you. And so if people want to get in touch or follow uh, you on various different platforms, where, where's best to go, Danny? Oh, yeah, um, that's a good question. Uh, probably they can find me on LinkedIn. Um, if, if they want to know if you just type da- Danny Kerry into LinkedIn or Daniel Kerry, probably Danny Kerry, you can find me on LinkedIn. I'll put a link in the show notes. Oh, I? brilliant. Thank you. Yeah, they can find me on there if, if, if people are interested and want to reach out. So, yeah, thank you for that, actually, Steve. Brilliant. Thank you, Danny. You're welcome. No worries. you so much for taking the time to listen i really hope you enjoyed this week's conversation now we've got plenty more to come so if you'd like to support and champion us then take the time to subscribe and leave a review on spotify itunes stitcher youtube or wherever you tune in you can also give us a follow on twitter instagram and linkedin all the links are in the show notes so in the meantime have a great week <laughs>